Hello, and welcome to Ringle Band's podcast series, Sustaining an American Music Tradition. My name is Cindy Miller-Rungst, president of the band. And this is Jim Seidel, the current musical director of the band. And we are, this is following up with a second podcast on the tenure of our musical director, Jim Seidel. He is celebrating 50 years with the band. And... 38 as conductor, I believe. This is 38. This is 38. We are celebrating this at our 165th anniversary concert this spring, um, uh, Sunday, April 30th at the Scottish Rite Cathedral at 3 o'clock in Reading, Pennsylvania. And our first podcast was um, finding out how Jim became involved in music in the Ringel Band with his with his teacher Walter Gear, who was the conductor of the Ringel Band, and let's pick it pick it right up. So, how did you transition from? Not only did you play in the section, but as you got older, you were a soloist of the band. Is That's that correct? That's right. Right. It was there. Uh, Walter said, you know, in high school, he said, "I'd like you to do this solo," and I think the first one I ever did was the sounds from the Hudson which okay. has become obviously because it was the first one I ever did it Your was favorite. my favorite well anyway uh as time went on you know i became the president of the band at an early age i was like in my mid-20s mm-hmm. and then i was appointed assistant conductor and we were still here at south fifth street and at the end of 1979 walter said to me he said hey uh I think my time has come. I think you're ready. You have the respect of the members of the band. He said, I think it's time for the youth to take over. And wow. We, How yeah. did you, did, well, <laughs> did I, you have to think about that or because it was coming from well, your no, mentor? He, he said, that's what he said and that's what I believed. I mean, he could have told me that the moon was made of green cheese and I probably would have accepted <laughs> right. it because he was the kind of guy, this is just one quick story, that in college, I called him up one day and I said, man, I'm having so much trouble with this facet of physical playing. And he said, well, here's what I want you to do. Blah, blah, blah. He gave me the whole outline and he said, call me back in two weeks and let me know how it went, how it worked for you. It's kind of like asking the doctor to take two aspirin and call me in the morning. Right. So I did everything he told me to. I called him back. I said, oh my gosh, why didn't you tell me this before? I'm really, it's really working. I'm really into it now. He said, I did tell you, but you weren't ready to learn. And that became a mantra for my teaching. Uh-huh. But uh, so when he said it was time and the members felt it was time, I became the director starting in 1980. And I thought, oh, it won't be that much different Monday nights. I was just going to say, did you have any idea what the whole job of conductor and musical director entailed none None. you know (laughs) i'm 28 years old at 28 i knew everything (laughs) i was so smart (laughs) reminds me of a comment my father made to me said when you get to be 30 or 35 you're going to realize i'm one of the smarter people you've ever met (laughs) he was right (laughs) but i knew it all at that time so i thought i just jump in here and away we go well i found out being the director was far greater than just running a rehearsal there was the personnel issues there was the music choices there was standing in front of an audience 
and speaking. I was the guy that would sit in high school. I never volunteered too many answers. <laughs> I might have been an itch in the class, but I, <laughs> right. I wasn't the guy that was always out in front of the class. So this was a scary experience for me. Waving the stick was easy. It was the rest of it that was nerve-wracking. But I was forced into it. Right. I have to do it. Now, what was so, the band like at that time? Like how many members, how many, and how many concerts did you do it a was, season? When I first started playing in this late 60s and the early 70s, the band might have done 30, 32 jobs a year. Wow, and, that's and, a lot. And a lot of those church picnics were four hours long. Mm. And that that's a lot of that's a lot of it's playing. A lot of music. It's a lot, it's of, a music, lot of music. A lot of music to program. Playing. Yeah, and and a lot of music to program. So the music didn't change that much because there was so much was needed, and you know it was a different different situation. As we got through the seventies, the band started to decline. There was less demand for that. Different things were happening in the musical world. Uh, some of the standard, uh, the I hate to say the word old timers but were retiring from playing and it wasn't drawing the newer people in at that point in time. So the band had declined and rehearsals were down to maybe like 15, 16, 17 people every, every week. And, wow. and that was not a good sign. Mm -hmm. So uh, my goal with, and Gene Umenhauer became president at that time, was to, to start trying to build the band back up and doing things that we felt would work. And of course, I really didn't even know what didn't work. Right, <laughs> right, but, right. So we're finding our way, and things were getting better. I was, I was happy. You know, we had a couple new people come in, and uh, being an educator in the county, I was able to draw some of my contemporaries. Hey, would you mind playing? You know, and we got some of them involved, and that that seemed to help the growth quite a bit. Uh, but it was, I, if my memory serves me correctly, and you know that's getting a little foggy at times. <laughs> I think it was October of that first year. We had a month-to-month -month lease with Frankel Engineering, and they sent a letter to the band stating that they were terminating our lease at the end of the month. We had 30 days to, to get our stuff out because they needed to expand their business. It was an amicable relationship. We... You know, they didn't bother us. We didn't bother them. Mm -hmm. We paid our rent. We, they took good care of us. We really appreciated that. And we understood. Mm -hmm. But what are we going to do? Here's this 28-year-old guy just inherits a community band with this tremendous reputation, just building up the personnel, and now he has no place to rehearse. Oh, my word. What are we going to do with all this music? There, at the time, there was probably seven, 8,000 titles of music stored there. Already? Yeah. Already. And the man who was the librarian had had re resigned so i'm sort of doing the library and so things are in disarray because earl fisher had his method that no one understood <laughs> but you could sort of find your way through it so by the good graces of exeter township where i was teaching uh the then super assistant uh, acting superintendent was dick schwartz uh he said you can use the junior high for rehearsals and uh, bill zeswitz said i'll give you part of my warehouse you can store all your stuff. But we did sell the pool table and the oh. hot dog maker. Oh, sad and, days. Yeah, it was, it was sad. <laughs> but we had no place really to put that. Right. We needed to put our stuff because the band owned a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? What do we do? 
now we go from we're just on we're just starting to just starting to resurrect ourselves and we get we have to go to a school to rehearse so then, no more beer so there was a lot of changes that took place i encouraged more women to join the band and there were a few but there were some great players like yourself who i attempted to come out and play several <laughs> times and you told me no many times <laughs> but uh that's just one instance. But there were also uh, some younger people willing to play. But here we go to the school where the smoking can't happen. That's right. You can't have the beer in the school. So that social aspect of the ban disappeared. Mm. And that had a negative effect. And, and I think if you look at any community bands around the country, there's that element of social that is important to make them succeed. Mm -hmm. So we lost that. But by the good graces, there was a gentleman by the name of Ben Funk who, who had done quite well for himself in life. And he owned a building in Laureldale and it was his son's business and his son's business grew to the point where he had to move out of that building. So Ben had this empty building. He says, hey Jim, let's go take a look at this building. See if we can use it for rehearsal. So we, uh, Gene Obenhauer, myself, and Ben looked at the building and we thought, well, this is possible. Well, Ben said, you can do whatever you need to do to it as long as I get the bill. Wow, the that band was really had, the, bill had ex the band had really exhausted its financial resources. We didn't have much. Mm -hmm. And so he paid for it and the band members themselves did all the renovation to the building to create on our lower level now is where we rehearsed. That was about, that happened sometime in 1981, and mm -hmm. I'm really vague on that time frame. But it happened around that time. And so here we are with a new place, just building it up. Gene Obenhauer built all these beautiful music cabinets to store all the music. He restored the library to a, an organization that is still maintained today. In fact, we've named the library after Gene. Uh, and we began rehearsing, and things started to grow. Because the social aspect was back. Well, the social aspect came back. Came back. The, the people, the band had a home. Mm -hmm. And John Connolly, who was president of what was Leesport Bank at that time, is now this bank, uh, approached Ben and said, look, it's time we buy this building. And he and Ben, to this day, I really don't know what the dollar figure was, but he and Ben agreed on a figure. We had a quick settlement, and next thing you know, we owned the building, and it was paid for. Uh, through Amazing. the graces of people in the community. Well, we outgrew the lower level. And so we looked at the upper level and there was a big hall and we fit in there beautifully. So the renovation took place there. And once that took place, we created the beautiful library space that we now have uh, through a grant through Michael, pa the late Michael Paik. We got a state grant to protect that that really historic library of music uh, with fire suppression and alarm systems. We, uh, we created music studios, which we did rent out for a portion of time, and now they're just basically office spaces that we need to use. Mm -hmm. And the great part is it's become our home, and we're almost outgrowing it, but it's home. We look at, when I look back now at the 15, 17 people we had at rehearsal, and now I look out there and see 50 to 60 of you every single week. And the balance of the band and the level of music that we play and the excitement, it's, it's been a great ride. 
and 38 years 38 years i never thought that i would see that and the hardest part was adapting being a music educator of a high school band we created a huge monster with the ringgold band <laughs> yes we because cindy you and i become a great team over the last 13 years and we made lots of appearances and things like that and the band's a legacy that I hope will last another 165 plus years because it's so valuable. It's the oldest musical organization in Berks County. And I'm really proud of what has been accomplished with all the great people. But most of all, I've met so many great people because of the Ringgold Band. And the Ringgold Band has flourished because of your passion and because of um, the, the connections that you have made through the community. So um, thank you so much for sharing that story. We hope that some of you can come out to our 165th anniversary concert on Sunday, April 30th and see um, the tribute to Jim. And this is Cindy Miller-Runks. And Jim Seidel, and thanks for listening. It's very special to me. Goodbye. <laughs>